You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet. Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, and thanks so much for rejoining me. I missed last week's Peter King Podcast uh, due to a bout of double pneumonia. I'm much, much, much better. Uh, For those of you who remember the last couple of weeks of podcasts, uh, I sounded a little bit like death warmed over. But anyway, uh, I feel significantly better, so... Miles Simmons and I are going to go sort of light on a couple of things that remain in the public eye uh, a week and a half after the Super Bowl from the Super Bowl. So we'll get into that in our first segment. We're also going to be joined by Patrick Mahomes. I had a 15-minute conversation with Mahomes on Monday of this week, and it was good. He was enlightening about motivation to three-peat. I thought he was excellent on the fourth and one play in overtime. You'll really learn a lot from why he did exactly what he did on that play. And the other thing that I think you'll learn about that and about him is listen to what he says when I ask him, so Sean Payton told me basically This is the first match point in Super Bowl history. And you had it. You go to the line. If you make the play, if you gain a yard or more, the Super Bowl continues. If you get stuffed, game over, you lose the Super Bowl. And I think you'll enjoy what his reaction was to that. I know that that I did, and it says a lot about what makes Mahomes Mahomes. In the second half of our pod, Miles and I are going to discuss some of the looming events of the offseason. What are the Bears going to do with the number one pick in the draft? And what should the Bears do with the number one pick in the draft? Should Caleb Williams absolutely unequivocally be number one in this draft? What should the 49ers do to finally catch up for Kyle Shanahan to finally get over this hump? And Daniel Jeremiah is out with his mock draft this week. He's got four quarterbacks in the top eight picks. Seems to make a lot of sense to me. So Miles Simmons and I will discuss it all. Miles, how's life? Uh, life is good, man. It's weird not having football on Sundays anymore. I... I felt like I was going through a withdrawal. So I, I went to the movies. I was hanging out with friends and it was that part of it was nice. The weather's not great here in Southern California. It is still raining. I thought we avoided that by being in Vegas for the Super Bowl. Guess we didn't. Um, but other than that, man, I'm, I'm, I'm really, <laughs> my head's still spinning knowing that a week from now I'll be sitting in Indianapolis for the combine. Huh. I, but the season just ended. Well, what do you mean? We're gonna, yeah. <laughs> like, how is that possible? <laughs> yeah. I always think it's one of the things that the NFL has done. I don't know how many people know this, but there was an old PR guy with the National Football League named Joe Brown. When I started covering the NFL in the mid-'80s, Joe Brown was the gatekeeper to Pete Rozelle, and he was hugely influential in the league. And it was Joe Brown and several other people in the NFL that decided to say, hey, why does baseball have a lock on off-season news in, you know, between the time of the World Series and spring training? 
why shouldn't we in the NFL have some tent pole events in the off season? And so that is essentially what has led to the combine becoming a major event on the sports landscape. It's what's led to the draft and the lead up to the draft becoming a major event on the NFL landscape. It's what has made things like the schedule release become really, really significant and people look forward to that. And then obviously training camp is another one, but you know, I think people should credit Joe Brown for what has happened with all of these events and the fact that nobody gets any time off in the off season anymore. But Miles, let's do a little bit of sort of distant Super Bowl wrap up now that we have had some time to think about it. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but there are three big things that I really wanted to get into just because I think they have all grown legs in the week and a half since the Super Bowl. And probably the first of which is Kyle Shanahan's decision in overtime to take the ball. And again, everyone has opined on this. Travis Kelsey and and a lot of Chiefs have basically made fun of the 49ers for taking the ball and all that. But I called a, uh, I actually spoke to two analytics people in the league and then an independent analytics person who I quoted in my column this week who basically said, look, the NFL's done a great job in writing the rules of overtime for playoff games to make it incredibly equal to both sides. And he said, if push comes to shove, if I had to make a choice, I would have done what Kyle Shanahan did. This is a guy who's contracted to work for five NFL teams who shares his data with them. But, and, and, and look, we can all have opinions about, oh, you got to take the ball second and everything. But the point of this is very, very simple. If the game is tied after two possessions, you got the ball probably at your 25-yard line and it's sudden death. Next score wins. So I understand why Shanahan did it. I know that you know when you win, you get to basically say, oh, what a dumb decision that was to do it. But I'm curious. We have not spoken about it, and I don't know what your opinion was. What did you think? Well, I understand it from Kyle Shanahan's perspective, because if you take it first, then this is something you sort of brought up in the intro to this, right? You have an uh, an opportunity to have a match point and get off the field and then you win. Now, is that more difficult when you're playing somebody like a Patrick Mahomes in the Kansas City Chiefs offense? Absolutely it is. But I think when you are trying to dictate the terms, then you do get to do that if you score first. Now, the opposite of that is, obviously, if you're the Chiefs, then you have a plan to say, okay, well, we want the ball second. We want to go down the field because we then know how much we need in order to try and win. And from everything that the players were saying, it's, okay, well, if they do score a touchdown, then we go down the field and we try to go for two, and that's how we dictate it. So I do understand that there are two sides to this, right? I mean, I personally would go more with what the Chiefs wanted to do, but I think that it's not like we're you're, we're going through this and Kyle Shanahan had no plan, right? I think it the difference is the players on Kansas City side all knew what the plan was, right? The players on San right. Francisco did not all know exactly what the plan was from Kyle Shanahan. That's you can definitely find fault with Kyle Shanahan for that part of it, Miles. You're absolutely yes. right. Yes, yeah, and, and so. That's where I think the difference is in sort of the mentality once you get into the overtime, right? I mean, if you got Kyle Juszczyk, who's been on this team for a long time, one of the team leaders, and he says, oh, you know, if we even if we score a touchdown, the game goes on. I didn't know that. And he's on the field saying that. Like, that to me is a little bit of a problem, 
Whereas on Kansas City side, everybody knew, okay, this is what it is. This is what we're doing. This is how we're going to go win. That's where I think we find fault more than the decision in and of itself. Yeah, I would agree with you totally. Uh, You know, when you have two weeks before a game to prepare for this game, and you have meeting on top of meeting on top of meeting. You need to spend a half hour one day to explain the rules of overtime. And Miles, how many people in the media, I, I can't tell you how many emails I got to my column that said, I can't believe how calm and relaxed Kansas City was in the last minute of overtime. What's wrong with them? Why weren't they using their timeouts? Why weren't they? And people just didn't understand, even though... I thought Jim Nance did a very good job. When I rewatched the game, Nance did a good job of explaining essentially that it was a brand new game. You played until the game is over. Yeah, they, you had a clock running, but it didn't matter. It's yeah. just like it's the end of the first quarter and you're going to the second quarter. There's right. that. The one final thing I would say about this decision. San Francisco defense was on the field for 39 snaps in the second half, including 11 snaps right before the flip of the coin. Now, uh, the 49ers did go out and kneel on it. I think, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Brock Purdy yeah. uh, just kneeled down on the last play in regulation. Mm-hmm. So, but still, that defense, and look, you would have to ask each player at the end of at the end of the fourth quarter. Were you gassed? Did you need a break? I could just imagine Miles. It's just me, but I could just imagine if the 49ers went out there and the Kansas City Chiefs just went right through them like they're not even there. I can just imagine all the criticisms of Kyle Shanahan basically with people saying, don't you know your own team? Your defense right. was gassed. That's why they were paper mache, <coughs> paper mache at the start of overtime. So anyway, look, much has been discussed about that. I think we both uh, gave our opinions there and blah, blah, blah. So I have one big problem right now, and it's going to lead into what I'd do if I were the 49ers entering this offseason. And that is the 49ers have some desperate needs uh, on that team, but nowhere, not desperate, have some big needs on that team, but nowhere, in my opinion, is it bigger than on the offensive line. So next-gen stats, who I have used all of this year, had a great stat that they gave me after the game, and that was this. The San Francisco 49ers allowed nine unblocked pressures of Brock Purdy in this game. Now think about that for a second, okay? Kansas City led the NFL this year in most unblocked pressures generated by their defense. The most they ever had in a game all year was seven. In the Super Bowl, they had nine, including two of the most important plays of the game. Game at the end of, play at the end of regulation when Trent McDuffie came in unblocked at the two-minute warning, deflected the pass, caused the 49ers to kick a field goal, leaving uh, Kansas City all the time in the world to come down the field and to tie it and to send it into overtime. That's number one. And then obviously on the third and four and a half at the nine yard line in overtime where uh, Chris Jones comes in unblocked. Uh, The guard and the tackle totally got confused on the right side of the line. He comes in unblocked and therefore he causes Brock Purdy to not be able to take the time to hit what would have been a wide open Juwan Jennings. So that to me, if I'm looking at sort of a global story for the 49ers coming out of that game, I thought their offensive line killed them, killed them. And that really 
was bothersome, in my opinion, as you consider why they didn't win this game. Yeah, Peter, you know, I, I would put the McDuffie pressure almost more on just Spags out uh, out scheming Kyle Shanahan in that particular spot. And I remember thinking coming out of the two-minute warning, right, the, the Chiefs need to get a free rusher here. That's the only way that you're going to be able to stop whatever this play is, is if you get the free rusher. And McDuffie did an incredible job of disguising it. And then he comes in and, you know, he messes up that play. He blows that thing up. That, that I think, is a great job and a great call by Spags and something that, you know, you explained really well in the column. Um, the, but the Chris Jones pressure there in overtime, that, that one to me, that, that cannot happen. You cannot have a free rusher coming through the interior of the offensive line on that particular play. Absolutely, it's inexcusable. And, like, so that's where, yeah, I, I think that you need to be able to do something there where you can say, let's take a look at the offensive line and why this kind of miscommunication would happen in this big of a spot. Because that's not something that you would expect, right? I mean, yeah, Kansas City does a great job of getting free rushers, but at that point, you need to know where 95 is at all times. And if he's going to blow up the play, make him earn it. I mean, he can do it anyway. But if you allow him, if you just open the gate and allow him to go through, I mean, well, what the hell do you think he's going to do? It's going to end up like that. So, yeah, the the McDuffie pressure, that – yeah, that well, that one's tough, you know. But the the one in overtime with Chris Jones, I, I that one's inexcusable. I'll tell you I, what I love about the McDuff, McDuffie pressure. Um, I spoke to Steve Spagnolo on Saturday, so six days after the game, and he he said to me, "Hey," he said, "Pete, I got a good story for you." I said, "Good, I love good stories." <laughs> and he proceeded to tell me that he had one call, which basically was the call getting pressure with four that they did on the Chris Jones rush in overtime, you know, where he comes in unblocked. He said it was going to be that, you know, that play mm-hmm. was going to be the play we were going to use. But the 49ers got it down to the two-minute warning, and I started to think to myself, and I said you know, I might like this play better where we design it for McDuffie, hopefully to come in unblocked, depending on how else we rush the 49ers on that play. And so he said, you know, we're the, the, the time is going down in the two-minute warning. And he said, I have communication right there with Nick Bolton, who's his defensive signal caller, number 32, middle linebacker. And he goes, Nick, what do you think of this play? And he tells him the play they ended up running with a McDuffie coming free. He says, what do you think of this play? And Bolton doesn't have the ability to talk back to him, but he, Spagnolo said, and for those of you who are watching this pod, he said Bolton went just like this, nodding uh, significantly, nodding enthusiastically up and down. So he knew, he said, okay, we're going to run that one. And it worked. It just says to me a lot about the chemistry between the coordinator and his defensive players. Um, The last thing I want to get into on this part, this segment, Miles, is every previous repeat champion did not, in, in the Super Bowl era, did not make the Super Bowl the next year. Never mind, never won the Super Bowl in the next year. They didn't even play in the Super Bowl next year. There have been eight of them. And so none of the eight made the Super Bowl the following year. And Miles, I get into it a little bit with Patrick Mahomes coming up here in a minute. But give me your thoughts on whether Kansas City can finally be that one team. Well, if anybody can do it, it's that guy you're, you know, we're going to hear from in a minute. It's 15. It's Patrick Mahomes. Um, His greatness and his motivation to be great is off the charts. So I think one of the things we have to think about, too, is that this Kansas City team should get better next year. This was the worst offense of the Patrick Mahomes era with Kansas City. They had a bunch of unreliable receivers. They found some reliable targets in the postseason, but. You've got to think Brett Veach is going to come up with something 
to improve that receiving core. He's going to come up with something to improve that offense. That's what he's done every time there's been some sort of lapse, right? I mean, you think about after 2020, what do they do? Well, they go and they totally revamp the offensive line. Okay, so that's something that they had to address. You know, whether it was defensively, they had to get a little bit younger. They had to revamp the secondary. They did that and they won the Super Bowl last year. You know, in terms of getting getting rid of Tyreek Hill, um, trading Tyreek Hill and and getting picks out of that. Like they've been able to refresh every single year. Um, So that's why I would anticipate that they'll be better offensively next year. Now, this is going to be extraordinarily difficult because it's now two years in a row that you've had the shortest off season of anybody. Right. And that doesn't make things easier, you know, and you're going to have an even bigger target on your backs and that division should be a little bit better. Um, So it's not going to be easy, but I think that if there's any team that could do it, yeah, it's, it's the chiefs. And I would at least expect them to be in the postseason next year. And once you get there, all bets are off as we saw this year. Miles, a couple of things about what faces Kansas City and what Kansas City has accomplished. So I remember the day 22 months ago that Tyreek Hill was traded to the Miami Dolphins. And when he went to Miami, there was a lot of um, I would say hand-wringing in Kansas City. Who's going to replace Tyreek Hill? And do you realize that over the last two years, Kansas City, and now uh, think of this too, this season is 17 games long now, not 16. Right. But in two complete seasons, Kansas City has not had in either season a 1,000-yard wide receiver and has not had in either season a 1,000-yard rusher. Mm -hmm. So what this says to me, as this team has gone 7-0 in the playoffs, 32-9 overall, obviously far and away the best team in football over the last two years. What it says to me is that, and again, with all due respect to Tyreek Hill, because he is a tremendous football player. Part of having Tyreek Hill on your team is also trying to figure out ways every game you're going to get him the ball. Yes. And that has changed. And look, not necessarily for the better all the time, Mm -hmm. but it has taken a little bit of a mental uh, toll away from Patrick Mahomes. Because he knew, Andy Reid knew, if you don't get Tyreek the ball, sometimes he's going to have little mini tantrums. And that now has gone away. And even though there isn't a superstar receiver on the team, you have a great tight end, you have a really good at times running back when he's healthy in Isaiah Pacheco, and you have a burgeoning very good player, if not starring Rasheed Rice. So... I think they got a shot, and of course they have a shot. But I think particularly if if they are able to bring this team back close to what it was, and if Travis Kelsey can have one more year near his peak, then I think they have a legitimate, definite shot to win. And Miles, we're going to take a break right here. And then on the other side, we're going to get to Patrick Mahomes. But I think you're going to enjoy listening to Mahomes just from the standpoint. He's had a few days to veg out now after being in Kansas City. He's home in Texas with his family. And I'm glad I waited a few days. I wanted to talk to him last week. I never got him. So I got him on Monday. But after this break, you're going to hear my conversation with Patrick Mahomes. That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that 
That's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Let's go. Give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet. Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. So, let's get to my conversation with Patrick Mahomes. And on the other side, I'll just have a couple of thoughts about two or three of the things he said. And then Miles Simmons and I will be back with the second half of the Peter King Podcast. I wanted to ask you a little bit about ancient history. I just worked on something about the 2017 NFL Draft. And I learned something that I didn't know before I started to work on it. And that is that you sort of honed in on Kansas City as a great spot for you right from almost from the start of the whole draft process. What was it about Kansas City that was attractive to you? Yeah, I mean, um, I think uh, during the draft process, just like meeting with the other teams um, and then meeting with Coach Reed and, and obviously knowing a lot about Coach Reed from him and his Philly days and to his Kansas City days, I just knew that specifically him, that he was going to be able to get the best out of me. Um, I thought obviously the team was really good. Uh, I, I knew you could know the players that we had. And uh, I think the biggest thing for us was just to continue to continue to um, find the right spot for me to build the best future for me. And obviously I knew Alex Smith was a great quarterback, and I probably wouldn't start from the beginning, but I felt like it was the best place for my future and getting the best out of me. A lot of players would not like to hear Hey, listen, you may not play at all in your first year. What was your reaction to that? Um, it, honestly, it wasn't even that, it wasn't that big of a deal. I, I don't know if it, just in the last few years especially, I feel like everybody plays right away. But when I first came in, I mean, everybody kind of sat at least for a little bit, um, unless you were really like the number one pick. And so it wasn't anything too crazy for me. When I went to Texas Tech, Davis Webb was there. And he was a sophomore, and I was coming in as a freshman, and, and my, my mindset was the same. I was just going to be ready for whenever I got an opportunity. And I just kept working and trying to continue to get better. And um, luckily for me, after a year, I learned a ton from Alex. And I was able to get be able to start at the right time for my career. And I feel like if I had started early, I, I still think I would have had some success. But I, I know I would have made a lot more mistakes that, that I kind of got through that first year without even playing. What do you think people in the NFL, those who scouted you, a lot of the draft analysts. What do you think people mostly got wrong about you coming out of Texas Tech? Um, I think the biggest thing was it was never the talent. I think it was the the, the work ethic part of it. I, I, I thought they didn't think I was going to be able to put in the amount of time that I've, I've put in to develop my, my skills and get better and better at the quarterback position. Um, I, I, I just saw it firsthand. I know it's kind of documented. I saw it so, so much firsthand of the great players and um, how hard they were to, to stay great. And um, I kind of made it a, a thing with me, and I, I want to just continue to work hard and see what I can get out of it. And honestly, I felt like in college I could have probably done it even more, and I think we'd have won more football games. And But once I got to the NFL and I realized that, I mean, this is a business, I need to – and a lot of these GMs and coaches put their neck on the line for me. I knew that I really needed to turn it up even another another step and um, make sure that they made the right decision when they picked me. And I think that's kind of where, where my game kind of really uh, boomed. A lot has been said about the time after you lost to New England in the championship game of 2018 in Kansas City and the time that you spent with Tom Brady afterwards. And Andy Reid basically told me that, you know, he, Brady sort of handed you, you know, the throne a little bit to the, to the NFL. And I want to know what you thought about that time you spent with him after the game and what really sticks out to you about those moments. Um, what really sticks, what really sticks out to me, I think it, it was just I'd, I'd worked extremely hard that year, and probably harder than I'd ever worked in my life, just to, to get into that position. And obviously, 
falling short. I was very disappointed, and and I mean there was tears in that locker room, and we thought we had the chance to to win the Super Bowl that year, and we had fell short. And I think just after stuff had calmed down, and and I was kind of just walking through the the uh, back tunnels that Arrowhead that you uh, you know what I'm talking about, and and he kind of just he grabbed me and he kind of pulled me to the side. And he's, all he really said was that he goes, "You're doing it the right way." He's like, "Just continue to do it the way that you're doing it." And I think. That for me was kind of that stamp of approval of I'm going to continue to work this hard. I'm going to continue to, to try to make my game even better and work and and keep going because if he's saying I'm doing it the right way, then that's the guy that you want to, to be saying that. And um, him seeing that from a, a other side of the football field and seeing all that the hard work I put in and how I've developed in, in a season, I think that just kind of carried me to have that mindset the rest of my career. And uh, I'm never satisfied with where I'm at. I want to continue to keep growing and continue to give ourselves chances to win football games. I, you probably remember this, if only slightly, but I talked to you after that game in Germany this year. You played Miami, and you guys were not playing well on offense. And you said to me on the field, you said, hey, believe me, we're going to get the offense straightened out. We're going to be good. And then afterwards, I walked up to you in the locker room, kind of fist-bumped you and said, hey, listen, I appreciate you uh, – doing that on the field after the game for NBC. You said, hey, yeah, hey, no problem. And you said, hey, by the way, I meant what I said. We're going to figure it out. We're going to be good on offense. And look, you know this was not your best offensive year, but I always think that is the way Brady thinks. It really is. It always was. He didn't care who was out there. He didn't care what the names of the guys were. If he had enough practice time with him, he was going to get Chris Hogan and Malcolm Mitchell to play at a Super Bowl caliber level. And that really, that moment kind of reminded me of Brady with you saying, hey, listen, I'm going to make sure we handle this. We're going to get the offense right. Yeah, and I think for me in that that moment and kind of throughout the entire season, even when we were struggling, it it was – our defense is a championship, a championship defense, and I didn't want to squander that. I mean, obviously, we weren't having the success that we had offensively, but I knew if we could just get just a little bit more out of each and every person, that we were going to we'd be able to score enough to win um, at the highest level. And um, I had seen the defense and how they were developing, and knew as as Spags has always done his defenses get better as the year goes on. Um, so I knew that we were going to be in the playoffs and be in every game. We just had to do enough offensively and. Um, I, I think the biggest thing for us was just continue to work at it, continue the process. And um, I have ultimate belief in everybody in that locker room. I mean, every single year, I know it's a challenge. I know you have to continue to build and kind of restart. Um, but whenever you go through the training camps that we go through, you go through the practices that we go through, um, um, and how hard everybody works, there's, there's no other choice than to win. I mean, no other choice than to go out there and put it all on the line and give everything you have. And a lot of times that means winning. And um, I think it just comes with the culture that Coach Reed uh, has kind of set. Um, and for me, I'm always going to believe in those guys, even after the game's over. I want to ask you about one play in the Super Bowl. Uh, and Sean Pay- I was talking to Sean Payton about this the other day, and he brought it up, and he said, I can't get over the fourth and one play. He goes, do you realize that's the first time in the history of the Super Bowl that it was match point? Either you make the play and you go on or you don't make the play and you lose the Super Bowl. And, you know, you know what I'm talking about, obviously. Fourth and one, 6.05 left in overtime. You're at your own 34. San Francisco's got a three-point lead in overtime. I want to know, you guys called a timeout. I want to know what happened in that timeout. And then what happened in the huddle before the play? Yeah, I wish I wish I could take all the credit, um, but uh, I, it was kind of crazy. So we were going through our plays, we were trying to decide if we wanted to run or pass, and we had a couple run plays kind of dialed up, and we'd already obviously had a lot of short yardage situations in the game, and uh, we were trying to find that perfect play. Um, so I was thinking of passes because I, I wanted to pass it obviously, and and had the ball in my hand, and it, it was actually MVS that came up to me, came up to the huddle on the side and he kind of just said hey let's let's go slide keys which is wild because it's not even a play designed for him it's really designed for travis and, and rasheed and when he said it it clicked to me i was like that's it that's perfect and then i uh what does it mean what exactly does it mean and so what it means is it's kind of a, a bootleg play where i fake a run and I, I get on the perimeter and there's kind of a 
a throw to Trav as he slides across. You have two guys, Vigo's MVS and, and Rasheed going across the middle, trying to cause some uh, disturbance, some interference type stuff. So Trav could outflank. And I, I liked it because it gave me the option to throw it to Travis. It gave me the option to throw it to Rasheed. And it gave me the option to run. And so I said, I told Coach, I was like, well, hey, let's call this. And um, obviously, I'm not, that type of play, we want to be man coverage. But I told him if it's not that, I told Coach, if it's not there, I'm going to run for it. Um, and so uh, he trusted us to go out there and call it, and it, was, it wasn't. It was zone coverage, and once I kind of got out outside and I saw room to run, I just went and got it. What exactly in the huddle do you recall thinking? Do you recall thinking if we don't make a yard, we've just lost the Super Bowl? I don't. I, I don't. I don't think I thought about that at all. I, all I could think about was, hey, I told Trav if, if Bosa comes up field, I'm gonna drop it off to him and just hope he, he's got to make the play. He's got to get the yard. And I knew if Bosa went, if he went down with the run run cell, and I had it on the perimeter and I could run for it, I was gonna run for it. And uh, the last thing I think I told Rasheed was, if it's not there, you got to find a way to get open. Um, and so he actually did get open on the play, and it wasn't necessarily a design route, but I had told him that in the huddle is. If it's not there, you got to find a way to get open, and, and he did. But we're able to, I was able to run for it, get the first down, and uh, kind of keep the change rolling. So two other things. One, you know, having to try to win three in a row. No NFL team has won three titles in a row since the Green Bay Packers in 65, 66, 67. And no team in the Super Bowl era has ever won three in a row. So you're always one of these guys who's looking for that great piece of motivation. And I know it's incredibly early. It's the middle of February. You need to take about 1,500 deep breaths. But have you thought about how difficult this is going to be? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's always extremely difficult. I mean, honestly, like every, every year to me is a new year. And I, I know how hard... Um, it's going to be to get to the Super Bowl by experiencing it. I mean, I've, I've gotten there and I've won it. I've gotten the AFC, Ch- AFC Championship and lost Super Bowl and lost. And it takes it takes a lot of different things. It takes health. You, you pray that you're healthy all year long, uh, not just yourself, but your entire team. It takes um, the guys' motivation around you. I mean, everybody's got to be motivated to be their best every single day. And you have to fight that complacency of uh, we've won two Super Bowls in a row. We've played the most games out of anybody in the last five years. Um, and guys are going to that, hope that – Summer session ends kind of quick. You're in OTAs out of nowhere pretty quickly here, um, and, then, and then it takes it takes uh, everybody's best. I mean, I think when you have that target on your back every single week, is it can get it can get tiresome of having to go out there and be your best every single week. And I think you saw that this last year, and it's going to be even amplified even more this next. And um, I'm sure that the off season, all the AFC teams are going to try to keep building to beat us. And there were already some great teams this last year. Um, so it's going to take everything that we have. Um, I, right right now, I think all you could do is we kind of strip back. You go back to, to day one. You go back to the fundamentals. You try to get better there. And then as the season goes on, you try to build um, and build. And so you're ready to go that first week of the season, and you kind of carry that momentum into the hope for the Super Bowl next year. Here's the two odd things about winning three in a row. No team in pro sports has done it since the Lakers in 2001 and 2002. Nobody in baseball, nobody in basketball, and obviously nobody in football since then. And the other thing is, no team of the eight previous ones that won two in a row even got to the Super Bowl in the third year. So you, you've, got, you've got the challenge of challenges in front of you. And I, I don't know, I, I have a feeling you're probably going to like it. Oh, 100%. I mean, how can you not? I mean, I think in, I think in anything in life, really, um, but for me in football especially, is you love the challenge. It gives you the motivation every day. It gives you the the uh, the right push whenever you don't feel like working out in the off season, or it gives you the right um, added fuel whenever you're in, in season and you might have to study a little bit longer. I mean, that, that's the stuff that you want. Um, the complacency is where you kind of lose stuff is when you're, you're satisfied with where you're at and, and you kind of just relax and don't and – don't, have that same motivation but that motivation to me is like what i kind of i kind of live off of that that stuff right there is something that i when i'm done playing football i'm about to find in something else because that gives you the motivation to be the best you you could be every single day back on the podcast really glad that uh, patrick mahomes was able to uh give us some time this week and i had two basic thoughts after listening to him and then i want to bounce one thing off miles based on what he said 
I was so interested in hearing him discuss two things about the fourth and one play. Number one, that Marquez Valdez-Scantling is the guy who came up with the idea for the call. And as you heard Mahomes say, it was not a play for Marquez Valdez-Scantling. So he brought up a play that could be the winning uh, lead to the winning touchdown in the Super Bowl on fourth and one. It could also be their last play of the season. But Marquez Valdez-Scantling had the presence of mind to say, I think the best play is the play that we either throw it to Rice or Kelsey or Patrick, just take it and try to get that yard or more. That interested me. But Miles, maybe even more, is when he said, when I asked him about, what are you thinking? Are you aware that if you don't make this yard, the game is over and you lose the Super Bowl? And his words were so interesting and to me say so much about Patrick Mahomes. I never thought of it. That really didn't cross my mind. And Miles, the reason why that interests me so much is that here we are, you and I, sitting in the press box at this game, watching it, saying, holy crap, this fourth and one, this is for all the marbles. Patrick, what can you come up with? And if you don't come up with it, you guys are the losers of the Super Bowl. And Mahomes saying, ah, never really entered my mind. And and here's what that says to me. It says, don't worry about the stuff that has no bearing on whether you're going to succeed or fail on this play. It can't help you to think, oh, boy, if I don't make this, our season's over and I'm a bum. It, it, <laughs> it doesn't do you any good to think about that. And I wonder, how does that hit you? In sort of the same way, it, it, it strikes me as indicative of the kind of champion that Patrick Mahomes is, um, the kind of person that he is where it's in the kind of competitor that he is where, look, we, all we need to do is take care of what's in front of us. And if we do that, then we're going to win. Right. And, and that's the kind of attitude that he's had, you know, basically since he started playing and since we became aware of him. And it's the kind of confidence that rubs off on everybody else so that they then think, yeah, we just need to follow this guy and he's going to lead us to where we need to go. And that, I mean, I, I it's so interesting because, you know, I think about tennis players and you go with me here as like some of the most mentally strong people that have to go out and play and, and win because there's nobody else you can rely on when you're out there. It is you, a tennis ball, and the other person. And so if you have a match point, right, and you need to save it, well, then who else is going to help you but you? So you have to be that mentally strong in order to kind of block out everything else and then say, all right, you know, this is fine. I, I've, I've got this. And in this particular case, that's kind of what Patrick Mahomes had to do. You know, you have to block everything else out. You just got to make the play and you got to keep going. And then when you do those kinds of things, it snowballs and it builds into that sense of inevitability that I think we all kind of feel as an audience when we're watching Mahomes. But I guess if you play with him, then there's also that sense of inevitability because he's that confident and, you know, it comes from within, from somewhere that he just says, yeah, we're just, this is just what we're going to do. We're going to do this and it's going to be fine. And that other stuff, maybe losing, like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not thinking about that because that has nothing to do with what it is that we have to do on fourth and one right here, which is just get that yard and keep going. Miles, uh, I always just really enjoy listening to Mahomes because I'd say 70% of what he says is on course with what, a franchise quarterback should say. Hmm. And it's got an air of predictability. Mm -hmm. But there are some things 
one of the reasons why I enjoy talking to him is that he gives you real information. If you, if you're asking the question kind of the right way. So what's right. going through your mind exactly on that fourth and one. And, and, and that's one of the reasons I think he's one of those guys. There are some people, players, coaches, who really don't help you do your job. They want to be as vanilla as possible, and they want to shut up, and they hope that you say, hey, thanks for the time. See you later. And you're gone right. after three or four futile questions. Mahomes, although, as I say, there's some of the things he says where you say, okay, get on with it, get on with it. But he does that because he's the leader of the team. He's the quarterback of the team. There's a lot of things he needs to say as the leader of that team and he, you know, and all that. But there are times, every time I talk to him where I said, now that is something. That is interesting what he said. So anyway, my thanks to Patrick Mahomes. Um, He's one of those guys, and I told him, we talked for a little bit afterwards, and I told him, you know, you really are a lot like Brady because when you talk, you understand that you are, you're the leader of your team, and people are going to be listening to what you say, but... You have this thing that you don't care about stats. You don't care about, you just care about the winning. And, and I told him, he really reminded me a lot of Brady. But anyway, he does. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. That, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. Okay, Miles, biggest question of this offseason, and there was a report this week that the Chicago Bears, uh, their plans for what they're going to do with the first pick in the draft are going to surface perhaps as early as next week. Mm-hmm. From everything you hear and everything, all the rumors that you hear, and I don't like to basically give only give oxygen to what are only rumors but it sounds like the bears are thinking very seriously of taking another quarterback and trading Justin Fields now in my opinion I think it's a big mistake and unless you believe deep down that Caleb Williams or any <clears throat> of these quarterbacks in this draft are absolute no doubt franchise guys. Unless you believe that, I just think it's a mistake. Build your team the right way. Build it with a slew of high draft choices. And then if you need to get a quarterback a year or two from now, you'll have to figure out a way to do it. But I would much rather keep Justin Fields who has been a B-minus player, maybe a C-plus player, but he hasn't had a great supporting cast around him. Build that supporting cast. And that's what I think. Give me your thoughts. Uh, I think if you're going to call somebody a B-minus player or a C-plus player and you have an opportunity to get an A player, then you take the A player, especially at the quarterback position. So, I mean, it seems like, yeah, the wind is blowing in the direction of the Bears picking Caleb Williams, and that's frankly what I would probably do too. Now, I I, I would say this too, and I, I think that this is really important. You have to make sure that the player and the person and the fit within the organization is completely right in order for you to do this, right? Whether it is Caleb Williams, whether it's Drake May, whether it's somebody else. 
That's the most important thing. Do all those things fit together seamlessly so that you're not just picking a guy because it's sexy to pick a guy like that. Like it, that's, it can't be that yeah. it's gotta be, does everything line up properly? And so if it doesn't, then that's fine. And you explore the alternatives, but given the uh, perceived strength, let's call it of this quarterback class versus the so far perceived weakness of some quarterback classes in the next couple of years, I think this is also why this is the year to do this. Right. If you say, okay, well, let's get a quarterback down the road. I mean, you you have no idea what that quarterback market's going to look like. And it might not behoove you to then wait for a couple of years and then try to, I don't know, trade for somebody or do this or do that. I mean, you've already kind of lucked into the first overall pick because the Carolina Panthers were so doggone awful last year. Right. So they have their first overall pick at quarterback. Now you have an opportunity to do it. And I don't mean this as, you know, putting Justin Fields down or saying that he's never going to be any, I, I don't mean that in that way, but I think between what you've already seen from Justin Fields and the contract element of it as well, I think that it makes sense to say, if we believe that this number one overall pick can come in and be a game changer for our franchise, that's what you do. And to me, it's not that difficult of a decision. I think it's a very difficult decision. And one of the reasons is, as you said in the start of your answer right there, that, look, if we knew Justin Fields is a B-minus player, if we think that's what he is, and you can get an A player, I couldn't agree with you more. But is Caleb Williams an A player? There are a lot of people who think that he is. And Miles, I talked to one general manager of a team that has a top 10 pick, just kind of shooting the breeze with him the other day mm-hmm. and just asking him, what do you think of the draft? I, I'm not, I wasn't writing about it. I just, and I said, um, obviously you're, you've scouted the quarterbacks. What do you think of Caleb Williams? You know what the first thing out of his mouth was? I said, he said, that was kind of interesting. See, Caleb Williams went to the F1 race in Monaco uh, before last season. And it was just, when somebody says that to me, it says to me that they've really studied this guy as a person. And it was clearly to this guy a negative, which I don't necessarily think it should be. Uh, People can do whatever they want in the offseason, and especially today, With NIL money, um, Caleb Williams can afford to probably fly first class with his girlfriend over to Paris or or wherever you fly to to get to Monaco and to go and have a good time. I'm sure he has the money to do it because he's made a lot of money in NIL. But having said that, those are the kind of things that are different about scouting players today. And there's one other thing that I would say. It's one thing to say, hmm, his 2022 season was far better than his 2023 season. Why is that? What happened? What's the story? Why did he come totally unglued against Notre Dame and a heavy pass rush? Why? Those are questions that have to be answered. And I think one of the interesting parts of this is he gets drafted by the Chicago Bears. That's a franchise, and I don't mean to, to, to kill the Bears. I really don't. But let's face it, Miles. Chicago is a franchise where quarterbacks have gone to die. That's it. That's all there is to it. It has not been a good place for young quarterbacks. And, and, and look, every quarterback who goes to a new team uh, and who is drafted you know, high in a draft, Everyone, you, well, I shouldn't say everyone. The vast majority go to teams that have significant questions on the offensive line. That Mm -hmm. is what would bother me if I were a team taking any quarterback, quite honestly, before I had everything set on my offensive line. And that's one of the reasons I would much rather fix my team (coughs) and think, 
I think I've got the quarterback in Justin Fields, but if a year from now we we don't think we do, at least we have the infrastructure to go out and figure another way to go get one. Because, Miles, if they trade this pick, let's think of one thing, all right? They're going to be acquiring not just a first-round pick from this team, probably a bad team this year, but they're going to be acquiring that team's first-round pick next year and also other things. So the Bears then will not only have their own pick in 2025, they will have theoretically a fairly high pick in 2025 from whoever trades up to get Caleb Williams. Anyway, I don't know if I've said anything that you want to respond to, but those are just a few thoughts I have. Well, nothing, I mean, I, I think you make good points, but none of them changed my mind, <laughs> if that makes any sense. I mean, like, I just, I think that when you know that this quarterback class is what it is and you understand that you're picking one overall and that means you hold the cards and you're likely not going to do that again. That's where, to me, it's like, okay, let's take advantage of this situation. Like I said, really, really boil it down. Whether if it's Caleb Williams and there's something that there's something there that's a red flag and you don't like it, fine. Maybe you take Drake May, right? Maybe you take Daniels. I don't know. And there's going to be inherent pressure on this player, no matter who it is, because it's going to be the number one overall pick. And it's going to be playing quarterback in Chicago, which, as you said, and I think, well, look, look, it's it's not a place where historically quarterbacks have done all that well. So you're going to be pushing against a couple of different elements. Is that player going to be able to handle that? You have to be able to try and figure that out as best you possibly can. And are they going to be a good fit for your organization in the way it is now? Right? Are they going to be a good fit for Matt Eberflus, Shane Waldron, those guys that are going to be piloting the team in the offense? So there's a lot that goes into it, but I, I just feel like if you think you can get an A player and you think right now what you've seen for a few years is a B minus or C plus player, then you have to go with the player that has the higher ceiling because I mean, build the team. Yeah, that's great. But your quarterback has to be able to lead the team and it has to be able to make the plays and has to be able to make the throws and has to be able to do it consistently. And if you haven't seen that demonstrated by a player that's been a professional for years already, I mean, I, I don't, maybe that player might need to change the scenery and that could help him. But I, I just think, especially with the way the contract implications are for quarterbacks, you, you got to reset there in some way and get somebody in there who you really believe in. Miles, I guess my belief is that, quite honestly, I'd rather have, and, and I'm not going to change your mind, and I don't intend to, but I would I rather have a B quarterback either. on my team. I'd rather have a B quarterback on my team with A-minus infrastructure all over the offense. And that's how I would, how I think is the best chance for the Chicago Bears. However, all right, in our remaining time, there's a couple of things. I have great respect for Daniel Jeremiah. I think he does a fantastic job. He's out with his second mock draft this week. And and I'll just, uh, let's just run down. Let's run down the top eight, okay, in Daniel Jeremiah's draft, okay? Number one, Chicago Bears, Caleb Williams, quarterback. Number two, Washington. Drake May, quarterback. Number three, New England, wide receiver Marvin Harrison. Got a lot to say about that. Number four, Arizona, wide receiver Malik Neighbors of LSU. Uh, number five, Chargers, Joe Alt, Notre Dame tackle. Number six, New York Giants, Jaden Daniels, quarterback from LSU. Number seven, <clears throat> Tennessee Titans, and I'm totally going to screw up this name because I've seen it, but I have not heard it pronounced. Olam Nidyawa Fashanu, the Penn State offensive tackle. And no, I'm not going to say it three times fast. Number eight, Atlanta Falcons, J.J. McCarthy, Michigan quarterback. So the, the biggest takeaway I have from this, other than I don't think anything here 
uh, is outrageous, outlandish, anything. However, I've been curious over seeing everybody picking New England right now anyway. And look, the draft is nine weeks away. How does anybody know anything? But I've been curious about seeing everybody give New England Marvin Harrison Jr. Not that I question the skill of Marvin Harrison Jr., but unless the Patriots get, pick a name, Kirk Cousins, Russell Wilson, I I don't know who else, in the offseason at quarterback, and who knows, they may. But unless they get a quarterback who they think for the next three years is their guy, Patriots are not passing on a quarterback at number three. I think the only way they would pass on a quarterback is if they traded down four or five spots knowing that whether it be J.J. McCarthy, Bo Nix, Michael Penix, I don't know. They might love somebody else. But give me your thoughts on that top eight, Miles Simmons, and what jumps out at you. Well, first of all, I think it's it's worth pointing out that Jeremiah says he doesn't do trades this early, you know, on in his mock draft season, which I think makes perfectly good sense. And, you know, he does so many of these things and they are all you know very informative um, as I, I, I also have just great respect for DJ and so and what he does. But I I find it interesting that there are so many quarterbacks in the top eight and J.J. McCarthy being one of them. That's where I'm like, that. that's interesting. I mean, I don't know. I, and yeah. I don't study the quarterbacks as he does um, over the course of the season or really any of the college players over the course of the season. And, you know, as I alluded to earlier, it's been a week since the Super Bowl and I got a week until we go to Indy. And that's kind of what it's like, all right, let's dive in to what draft season is. Um, but I, I think that when you have a, a perceived quarterback class of strength like this one, yeah, you could see a lot of those guys going in the top 10. But I tend to agree with you on Marvin Harrison Jr. also with the Patriots. I think that he is a great, great player, and I watch Ohio State because I'm from Ohio, so I, I know how good he is. Um, but when you're looking at what New England kind of needs, you know, the quarterback situation is something that you would have to think that they'll address. And I could see them bringing in somebody as a bridge guy like a Jacoby Brissett because they hired Alex Van Pelt. You know, he was with the Browns and Jacoby Brissett was with the Browns. They, they know each other a little bit because of that, you know, and Brissett obviously drafted by the Patriots. So I could kind of see that homecoming and him being a bridge guy if they feel like they need that. Um, but that's just a position where if you got Mac Jones, yeah, Bailey Zappi, and it's like question mark, question mark, question mark. You have to do right. something to reset at that position. And I think drafting a young guy and potentially sitting him for a while until he feels comfortable, la, 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 that's something that they could do. I, I'm going to find it very interesting to watch the Atlanta Falcons in mm-hmm. this offseason because obviously Raheem Morris brought Zach Robinson with him from the coaching staff with the Rams. And now Zach Robinson, I think, is going to be the leading voice along with general manager Terry Fontenot, uh, to determine how these quarterbacks get stacked on their board and whether one of them is worth taking at number eight. And Miles, I think we both agree the Atlanta Falcons absolutely should be thinking seriously and and barring an upset or, or, or five quarterbacks being picked in the top seven. I, I think the Falcons absolutely have to go quarterback at eight, don't you? Yes, and unless they go out and they acquire one, like the guy we were just talking unless about Unless they before, get Kirk Cousins, Justin you're Fields. right. Yeah. Or Kirk Cousins, right. yes. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. Fields, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to watch. But And look, just remember, Kirk Cousins' wife is from Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Kirk Cousins and his wife, Julie, spend a lot of time in the offseason with their kids' grandparents in Atlanta, very fond of the area. You never know. But I think this is all in the hands of Kevin O'Connell, Quasi Adolfo Mensa, uh, the general manager. And I think that is going to be one gigantic domino to fall uh, probably by the middle of March. Miles, you're going to the scouting combine this year. I am not. So tell me, when are you going to the combine? 
I will be there Monday afternoon and I will leave Friday evening after we talk to the quarterbacks on Friday morning. So I'm excited about that. Okay. So why don't we just figure that sometime on Tuesday, after you have a little bit of knowledge, let's record the podcast. We'll have you on from Indianapolis and we'll have a nice little chat. Sounds great to me. Hey, Miles, thank you so much. And thanks to everyone. And thanks to Patrick Mahomes, too. Thanks to everyone for experiencing another episode of the Peter King Podcast. Again, apologies for missing you last week. I hope in jamming in two podcasts into one that we really made your football lives just a little bit better. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you next week. That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard.